Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a scorching spring morning here in the capital is Gary Tiley. Gary is the Managing Director of Graphics Byte, a Hampshire-based digital marketing agency. Uh, Gary, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thanks ever so much for joining us on the show. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Scott. Brilliant. It's nice to be here. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme, Gary. Certainly is a lovely day forward as well. Um, now, it's not the first time, of course, you've joined us on the uh, the show. And I believe you spoke to us um, a few weeks into the uh, the COVID national lockdown uh, last time. And now we've been in the be- in the grip of the pandemic for the best part of the last 14 months, haven't we? And even though... Yeah, well, that's it. I think yeah. last, time, last time we jumped on, we were, we were sort of chatting um, about, about kind of... I think it was very in the early days of the pandemic, um, around the sort of April, May time, I believe. Um, and now it's just yeah amazing how quick it's all kind of flown by and, and things are looking like, like in a much better position now. Mm. Yeah, they certainly are, aren't they? Um, there are some real green shoots starting to uh, to show now, and um, there is a sign that hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel, and we are moving out of social restrictions, hopefully for good. Fingers crossed. Um, but just reflecting on sort of the last forty months as a whole, just how has all of this affected you and your business? In the wider context, um, so, I mean, in the last like forty months, I'd say um, things have just gone well, gone from strength to strength. To be fair, mm. um, I feel feel, feel dead, dead lucky because um, obviously, yeah, what we do is just all digital services and it's website building and it's everything that that relies on being online. Um, so I'd say through the start of the pandemic, things were going really, really poor for about a week or so. Um, just because everyone was in a bit of a panic mode situation, um, so sort of cancelling work, postponing things. Um, and then we got to around the, the sort of late April time last year, and things just started to fly up. And then with the like, summer, it was just getting busier and busier as we kind of like the lockdowns were, were, were ending. Um, and then it just kind of, that's kind of continued really right up to Christmas. And then, and then this year, I guess, since the sort of restaurants and and bars and all that were allowed to open around the March April time. Um, things have just got gone even even more mad. Um, so yeah, things have, things have been crazy here, and, and I'm blessed that I have. Um, yeah, so really really lucky. And there's been a significant move toward digital over the last 14 months, hasn't there? We've seen so many people changing their working practices, and even though it was initially out of necessity that shift, it seems to be now that flexible working models. It's good. It's going to be the status quo, isn't it, going forward? And it's yeah, going to be here for the long that's term. That's it. Definitely. I mean, I, I mean, I think there'll be so many people like, like, like. It depends on how much time you have in a day, but so many businesses from when we used to speak before the pandemic, um, you know, never thought they needed online or they would put it off, and they never thought it was important. Um, and now I've got like so many clients where their businesses were um, like, I've got one one major client. Their business was sort of selling over about 100, 150 grand a year. Um, but it was all like physical, uh, not much online. And then now, like because of the pandemic, luckily we sort of like got on the website in and um, just like about a year or so before the pandemic and he started to build up his online business. He was luckily able to still continue his same, same sort of turnover just through the online um, and like you say, if if he sort of looks at those sort of things when the pandemic starts, 
you're already too late. Um, and that, that is the issue. Um, so you, you've definitely got to be on the ball um, and just trying to trying to keep forward and, and keep, keep looking forward and keep, look, uh, keep on top of yourself, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very right. And as we move out of the pandemic now, given that it is going to be sort of a persistent theme going forward, there are going to be so many opportunities for those businesses that do work in digital and do work in technology, aren't there? It is really an exciting time ahead. Definitely. I mean, I think it's brought so many clients that, that are not interested in online, um, so many small, medium businesses, or, or now or they're just concentrating online and they're, they're kind of reaping the benefits of it. Um, they're probably kicking themselves that they didn't start things earlier. Um, but, but like you say, everyone's goal now is to just make sure that, that the online side of things is like a separate business, essentially. Um, and you just want to make sure that, that, that whatever's going on online for your business is strong. And then that way, um, your, your in-person business can, uh, can, can still flourish as well but at least that online covers you for, for the future, really, just in case, you know, touch with another pandemic doesn't happen or, or anything like that. But if it is, at least some of these people have their businesses kind of covered now. Um, and I'm sure a lot of businesses not only cover themselves with online, they might have even created a second revenue stream. Um, so, so, so there's loads of businesses that might actually be kind of like doing a lot better out of the pandemic. Um, and like you say, as other businesses shut down, new ones will open and, and, and that's, just, that's just the game of life, I suppose. And even though it's been sort of a mixed bag for industry, some businesses have found themselves getting stronger during the pandemic. Others have struggled that little bit more. I think every single business leader I've spoke to over the course of this last year has come away from the pandemic, having learned something from their experience of guiding their business through. So would you say that's applicable to you, Gary? And that you certainly yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, for me, like maybe not so much in the business sense, but personally, um, you know, I'm a bit of a workaholic and, and I don't really look after myself in terms of, you know, like health and, you know, everything comes secondary towards business. Um, and I'd say throughout the pandemic, it, it kind of, it kind of allowed me to have that freedom and time, um, because, you know, clients couldn't really pester you because we were in the start of the pandemic. So I could get on with fitness and exercise and stuff while I'm, while I was working. Um, and that, that definitely is a job send and it's something I still do now. Um, so, so I'm thankful in that respect that it kind of has, has made people maybe reevaluate things, um, and maybe put them put health first family first other other than just work all the time uh so no i'm definitely definitely saying fun i think a lot of people out there will be in the same boat they'll either be you know people people who will be at home putting on weight and, and, and then unfortunately lost their jobs or there'll be other way out there exercising and, and really focusing on on their personal health and life as well um but i think it's definitely very 50 50 um yeah and it's, it's just luck of the draw Yes, yeah, certainly. And um, what has happened as well with the flexible working side of things is that that's given rise to a greater discussion about the work-life balance, hasn't it? And that's going to be an immense benefit to come from this in the long run, more of that self-awareness of our personal health, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people, uh, companies are realising now that not everyone wants to come into the office nine to five, like Monday to Friday. Lots of people will just want to work from home. I think, judging by what I've seen online, that the the majority of people want a mixed bag of going into work and then working from home. Um, so if your job job can do that, then, then I think that's definitely worth that, allowing everyone to be flexible. Um, at the same point, I guess the downside from what I've seen is that it'd be hard to train people or to upgrade job roles if they're just working from home because um, you're not going to get that that interaction from everyone. So it's just like there's positives and negatives to everything, as always. Um, but, but at least it'll give companies more flexibility and, and it'll force those people that weren't sure about how to work from home. They, they know it now. Um, and, if, and, if, and if you're talking from a, from a personal aspect, you know, we've got like grandparents now that, that FaceTime and video calls and Zoom and stuff. So it, it's kind of forced older generations to, to catch up as well. 
um, and, and force them into the digital world. And I think that now we come out of the pandemic, they'll they'll, they'll stick with it, um, and it and it can only give them benefits really. Um, I suppose one of the pitfalls of the digital world as well is that um, being connected over a distance means that you sort of have to amend the way that you sort of lead your own team, doesn't it? And it can be difficult to spot certain things with regards to well-being. So is that yeah. a challenge, would you say? that? I, I, I definitely think that that's a challenge because, like you say, if everyone's working remotely and stuff, it, it, as a manager or, or, or a business owner, how, how can you keep an eye on the team that much like remotely? Um, I think that's, that, that's definitely a struggle. Um, and, you know, people's, how hard can people really work in terms of productivity when they're working from home and things like that? Cause you're not getting that interaction or, or, or not maybe necessarily that much support there because you're not physically in a room with someone. Um, so there's definitely, definitely issues relying to that. But I, I think, I think there's more benefits than, than, than uh, disadvantages for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's about sort of just being able to find that motivation, isn't it, I guess, when you're yeah. sort of working by yourself. And I suppose there's always that kind of isolation aspect of it. If you are in the house on your own, there's nobody obviously there with you. So um, self-motivation yeah. is hugely important with that. Um, and- yeah, I mean, there will be some people, mm. like, obviously, that will be more, more, more say, depressed than that, that they are working from home. And there'll be people that, that have got a busy household, maybe loads of kids running around and stuff. And they, they, to be honest, can't wait to get back into the office and, and kind of give them that peace of mind. It's, if you're around family 24-7 and locked in your house and, and, and things, that's, that's also not good. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely down to the personal person. Um, and yeah, it, it's different for everyone, I'd say. And I suppose as leaders as well, we can we can look at ourselves as people that motivate and people that drive others. But when we need sort of that little bit of motivation for ourselves, do you think that largely comes from within or can it come from other sources? Uh, it's definitely from within still, yeah. Motivation has to come from within. You know, we've had people here um, employed that, that are quite unmotivated and they literally need hand-holding for every task. And have people that can run away with it. Um, and that, that isn't something that's to be taught. I think, yeah, you have to think, you have to be that sort of person that can use your initiative um, and, and not, not need to ask, like, what's the next task? What's the next task? Every five minutes, you just, you just run on and get on with it. Um, and I think uh, you can't learn that. That's just that's just within you. It depends on your work, your work drive, um, and, your, and your mentality. Really, I think that's very right. And just talk, thinking about the importance of mentality um, at the moment, um, there are a lot of younger people, particularly of the entrepreneurial stock, perhaps that may be listening to this podcast and may be thinking, uh, what opportunities are out there for me at the moment to obviously go and find a job role or start my own business. So being in charge of a business that's done quite well during the uh, the pandemic, working in digital, what would your sort of message of advice or motivation be for those sorts of people to really get them on the road to success? I guess it's, the only thing you can say is just keep trying. Like Just keep trying things, keep doing stuff, just never give up. You know, even if you lose your job, um, you know, we're only young. If you're under 30, whatever, it doesn't, it's not the end of the world stuff. You get another job. There's always going to be opportunities coming up and you just have to, to get as much opportunities as you can. Um, don't blame anyone else, you know, don't blame governments or other people or family. You know, the only person you've got to blame is yourself. Um, and, and you just keep trying, keep going again and again to either get that, that perfect job you're trying um, or if you're setting up your business, you know, you, do, you just keep trying it. Um, and you just do what you can to survive, really, and then just don't just don't spread yourself out too thin. 
Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's just all down to motivation and mindset stuff as well. There's no pressure. I think I think everyone seems like everyone's having a business these days. Um, and, and unfortunately, most nine out of ten people are just not not built for it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with just having having a job as well. Um, it's, it's just more about your mental health and keeping on top of things. Um, just don't push yourself too much, really. But just just keep trying to do everything you can at your own pace. Um, get as much advice from other people as you can. Um, you know, if you, if you know like parents or old bosses and things like that, they're the sort of people you want to follow because um, they've got life experience. Um, you know, you just want to be a sponge in life, really, and take as much info in as you can. But make sure you follow your own path. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's kind of the only advice I can give, really. And I think that's very sound advice indeed. And um, just because I'm conscious that we are um, starting to run short of time, Gary, uh, there is one thing that I want to talk about before we finish. Um, and yeah, it was essentially the finishing point for our last conversation back in the early days of the pandemic. It was where do you think your business is going to be this time in a year? And it has fortunately for yourselves been a tale of success now that we're a year down the line and now that we can hopefully see the finishing line of this pandemic and we're moving out of it. Where is it that you want to be this time in twenty two and in twenty twenty two rather? And what do you think is on the horizon for you? Um, I mean, like to be in like next year would would be nice. So we've got full time staff now here. Um, it'd be nice to maybe have another one or two. Um, with just the business being even more settled and grounded, um, a bit more secure. Uh, and then I, I would just say things to just flourish as they are, to be honest. And then in the personal life, get maybe getting a house and things like that. Um, and just just having things more sustained, really, um, just so I can take the pressure off myself. Uh, I've been doing this uh, for seven years now, full time, and near enough most of that on my own. So it'd be nice if we can, if I can take a step back and concentrate more on the business side of things, and and have more staff doing doing the actual work, um, and then hopefully just just grow like that, really. I think that's um, a fantastic ambition and I wish you all the luck in the world in uh, making that a reality and uh, I have to say Gary just given how wonderful it's been having you join us again it'd be a real pleasure it'd be be a real pleasure for me to catch up again in a year's time and just see how everything is starting to come to fruition in that sense yeah that sounds fantastic I appreciate you having me on Scott as well it's been wonderful Gary thanks ever so much for joining us on the show once again and just because we're not quite out of the woods with this situation yet but we're getting there just continue to take care and stay safe with everything still happening in the world as well yeah no brilliant perfect look after yourself Scott appreciate that mate and that message also goes to all of the listeners tuning in as well. Do please continue to take care, look after yourselves because it makes such a difference in saving lives. Remember, better days are coming. We are almost there. Um, it was a pleasure again, of course, to welcome Gary Tiley onto today's show. And next up on the programme today, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who'll be offering his take on the ongoing pandemic situation and where hopefully we'll be heading in the months to come. That is coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up.
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been... uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? 
but that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.